0: Glad to be back with you all. I want you for a moment to imagine you're in the first century and you're sitting in the town of Smyrna and you're a Christian. Not the city in Tennessee, but the place in Asia Minor. And you hear that you guys just got a new letter from John the Apostle. And in it, there is a message directly from Jesus. And you read, listen to the guy reading chapter 1. It's exciting. You have Jesus standing among the lampstands. And he is presented as this amazing being. White hair. It's just an amazing picture of who Jesus is. Then they keep reading, and they say here to the church in Ephesus, i got a message for you. And Ephesus, they're doing really good with false doctrine, and they're doing good works, but they've left left their first love. And they're, they're being tempted away just to apathy. And then you are here and read to the angel of the church in Smyrna, how would your ears perk up right then? It's like, oh, this is to me. And he, re- and he says, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison to test you. And you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who hear, has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. I don't know if you caught the theme in this letter to the church in Smyrna. Let's take out some of the words. catch it. The one who was dead has come back to life, says, I know your affliction and it's about to get worse. Be faithful until they kill you. The one who conquers, wow, why do I do this? The one who conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Do you see what he's telling you? How would you feel if you were sitting in that church in Smyrna? I already see your affliction and your poverty, and you're being thrown around by these Jews who say that they're, they're from God, but they're not. They're from the synagogue of Satan. And it's about to get a whole lot worse. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison, some of you are going to face death. How would you feel? after reading this. It's scary. It's real scary. You keep listening on and you hear the rest of the letters to the other churches, but how would you feel sitting in Smyrna? You know, the Bible is full of of people who are in times where it seems like the bad guys are are winning. God's people are losing. Picture on the screen is an artist's depiction of what would happen just several years after John writes this in the Colosseum, where Christians were arrested, thrown into the Colosseum, and either put up on stakes to be burned to light the streets of Rome or to be fed to wild animals for the entertainment of Romans. Things are going to get worse, and it looks like the good guys are losing. How could God let this happen? That is why Jesus, through the pen of John, has a message to these Christians in the first century. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, we need to first read it like we are sitting in the first century. And it directly applies to them. But the same truth that's in the book of Revelation is ever a bit applicable today to us as it ever has been. Now, there's a danger when people, and people are scared of the book of Revelation because they treat it like it's a puzzle. If I take this number over here and this number over here and add them together and subtract this over here and do it, and you get that, that meme of the person just ser- completely baffled by all the information around you and you just get lost. Really easy. I tell you how you're supposed to read the book of Revelation is not like it's a puzzle. Instead, you should look at it like it's a play. You know, they didn't have, in their times, they didn't have movies or television shows. What they had was this type of apocryphal language. And when you read the book of Revelation, you should imagine the scenes in your mind and just let it play out and let that teach you something. Now, a lot of times the curtain will close and it will open up, like in chapter 4, and there he sets the setting. He tells you what the guy on the throne looks like, and the surroundings, and all the creatures that were surrounding him, and the rainbow, and the fire, and the lightning. And then in chapter 5, there's this great big problem, is that there's a scroll, but nobody on the earth, under the earth, or in heaven is worthy to open the scroll. And what's going to happen? And it's bringing John to tears. Have you ever cried in a movie? Because you just feel emotionally invested? That happens to John in chapter 5. But then there's this loud announcement. Here comes the Lion of Judah. And what does John expect to see walk out is, well, a lion. But what walks out instead? A lamb. that looks like it had been slain. Normally, slain things stay dead. But not this lamb. Instead, it comes. It's worthy to open these scrolls. Do you see how this is supposed to be emotion evoking? What we're going to do this evening, I'm going to do an overview of some of the chapters that lead up to this, but I want to talk about chapter 12. In chapter 12, after the curtains close at chapter 11, it opens up and it even says... Here is a a, a new image. Here's a new scene. We're going to talk about a dragon. Not just any dragon, it's a great big scary red dragon. But there's a point. Even though it's big and it's scary, in Revelation chapter 12, it is the dragon who always loses. He is the dragon who always loses. So let's do this recap. We've already talked about chapter 1. John is in exile on the island of Patmos. He gets a revelation for, from Jesus, and he's told to write these things down. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, he has specific messages for the churches in, in the first century. I'm going to pull out one thing that from these two chapters. There's a lot more, obviously. But Satan is attacking these churches in different ways. There are three main ways that Satan uses to attack Christians. Those ways are persecution, false teaching, and temptation. And those are three very, very different attacks. Some churches, are they're fine doctrinally, but they're giving in to sexual temptation. Or they're doing good, but they're listening to the doctrine of Balaam. The, different churches are falling to different things, and like in Smyrna, they're being attacked straight up by persecution. We're not told how well they're doing doctrinally or with temptation. They're just told to hang on because persecution's coming. Satan tempts them in three different ways. But they need to persevere because it is going to get worse. When you open chapter 4, we mentioned just a little while ago, Jesus is the only one worthy to open the scroll. So when you start chapter 6, he starts cracking those seals. In the first four seals, it starts to get a little dicey. But chapter, the fifth seal is different. When he cracks the fifth seal, he's listening to the prayers of the martyrs who were under the altar, and they're asking, How long? How long before you give us justice? And then the sixth seal is cracked, and it, it starts to go down. This is when God starts judging the world. And it's not a bad thing. This is God acting in response to those prayers of the fifth seal. And if and you ever watch a television show, one of those drama shows, and it gets right up to the climax when something big is about to happen, what do they always do right before the big thing happens? They cut to a commercial. Chapter 7 is a commercial break. Chapter 7 is, hold up, before the big judgment happens, we got to do something First we're going to seal the 144,000, the righteous people on the earth, they are going to be protected. Revelation is my second favorite book just to sit down and read because it's exciting, it is action packed. The second part of chapter 7, it describes the great multitude in heaven and John says, "Who are all these people?" Or or the angel asked John, who are these people? And John's like, you know know who they are. And he said, these are the people who have been slain. These are people who are righteous, who are dead. Chapter 7, whether you're a righteous person on earth, or you're in the great multitude in heaven who's having a party, you're protected, you're good, no matter what. How would you feel if you're one of these seven churches? Whether I'm, I'm on earth, or I'm in heaven, God's got me sealed. That's chapter 7. That's the commercial break before seal number 7 cracks. And when seal number 7 cracks, have you ever been in a in a in a moment where a, a great big stadium where they have a moment of silence and everything goes completely quiet? How eerie that is. Could you imagine being surrounded by thousands upon thousands of things and then there was silence in heaven for half an hour? And what is God doing during that silence in heaven? Well, the incense is brought in. It's the prayers of the saints. God is listening again to the prayers of His people who are on earth, who are, who are going through everything that these people in the, second, the, the, the seven churches are going through. And He answers those prayers, chapter 8 and chapter 9, with seven trumpets, where God brings His judgment. And in chapter Starting in chapter 10, John is handed two things. First, he's handed a scroll. He says to eat this. It's the Word of God. It tastes good in the mouth, but in the stomach, it's bitter. It tastes good because it's God's Word, but the message that he's got to give to people, it's not a fun message to give out. And then he's given a measuring rod. You remember how in chapter 7, people had to be protected first? Well, in chapter 11, he's told to measure the temple. What is the temple of God in the New Testament age? Well, where does God live now? You would say in us, but get more specific. He lives in our hearts. He says, don't measure the part surrounding the temple, the outer courtyard. If, if your heart is the temple of God, what's the outer courtyard? Your body. They can kill your body, but they can't destroy your soul. What's sealed in chapter 11? Again, it's Christians, your heart, your soul. It's protected by God. And then in chapter 11, you have these two witnesses of God, and they're given authority, and they're doing all sorts of stuff. And then this beast comes up, and it starts tormenting. And plot twist, you think God's people are going to win? No. God's two witnesses, they die. The beast overpowers them. And not only are they overpowered, but they won't even let them be buried. They're laying in the streets for three and a half days, and all the nations of the world are throwing a party because we don't like what they were telling us. They're just, their bodies, their carcasses, are lying in the street for three days. But they don't stay that way. God raises them up. He takes them to home. And then more judgment comes. So that is a kind of a recap of the first 11 chapters of... So when we get to chapter 12, the message of Revelation so far is Jesus sees and He knows what you're going through. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what the false doctrine you've been listening to or not listening to. He knows the persecution you're undergoing. And He knows what you're doing behind closed doors. He knows the temptation that, that you fall into. And you need to straighten up if that's your problem. Next... Christians are in difficult times. The first century Christians, it's already challenging, and God hears their prayers, and He is acting, and and it's going to get worse. Physically for them, it's going to get a lot worse. But Christians are protected. And the faithful dead who've already gone on before you, they're home, and they're they're watching over us, and they're and they 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 are they're they're in party town. They're, they are well protected. They are in the throne room of God. They are worshiping. You don't have to worry about them. That's the message up to this point. So let's, let's start. We've already read these first six verses. So let's get into this chapter. Because this to me is one of the most encouraging. Even though it looks scary and dark, he is the dragon who always loses. It so says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on its head were were seven crowns, or diadems. We'll talk more about that in a second. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour the child. She gave birth to a son, a male who's going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God to be nourished for 1,260 days. Let's go back to verse one. He sees the sign in heaven. Curtains close, curtains open again. Here's the setting. He sees a woman clothed with sun and moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Uh, This woman is is dressed royally in, in this. And she was pregnant, cried out in labor and agony, and she was about to give birth. Can you think of someone who is in more vulnerable a position than a woman who is already in labor pains and is crying out? There is no one that is more vulnerable than that. Any enemy could defeat this woman. So in this corner, you have a pregnant lady who's about to pop. And in this corner, you have a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. If one-headed dragon wasn't enough, this one has seven. And on its head were seven crowns, or diadems. That word that's translated diadems, it's only found three times in the entire Bible, in the entire New Testament, and they're all in the book of Revelation. And they are all show not a lasting victory, not a lasting rule, but a temporary rule. You, you saw it when uh, earlier when, when the, the 24 elders were put... Oh, I'm sorry. You see it in chapter 12 here, Chapter 13, the, the the sea beast is going to wear diadems, seven diadems. And then in chapter 19, Jesus has many diadems. All of the rulership of all the earth, it all belongs to him by the time you get to chapter 19. This is a temporary rulership that Satan has. It's not a lasting victory. He may look like he's winning in the moment, but his crown is just a diadem. He has power. How big would a dragon have to be if its tail could sweep away a third of the stars in heaven and hurl them to the earth? Because you just picture it in your mind, a woman who's ready to give birth and a dragon prowling right outside her hospital ready to eat her child. He stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, and when she did give birth, it might devour her child. No one more vulnerable than a newborn baby and a pregnant woman. But what happens? Something that you wouldn't expect. She gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and His throne. This child has a place in heaven and it's on a throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had prepared... A place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. So let's talk about the characters. Well, who is the dragon? Well, that's that's the easiest answer. Because in verse 9, it says right out that this is Satan. The great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceived the whole world. We're told who the dragon is. This is Satan. And you may think Satan is big and scary. And in this picture, he certainly is. Uh, But we're going to see what happens to him. The child? Well, when you compare uh, what's said about the child here in Revelation chapter 12 with what is said about the Messiah in, in Psalm 2, it said earlier in Psalm 2, the kings and the nations are making this big uproar to conspire against the Lord and against His anointed, but God says he's established his king on his holy mountain. I will declare to you the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like poverty. When you hear of a son ruling with an iron scepter, you automatically think Psalm 2. This is the picture of Jesus. And later on in Revelation 19 verse 15, it says a sharp sword comes from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. But who is this woman? Well, this woman is, I would argue, is the people of God, specifically the remnant of Israel. In Micah chapter 4 verse 6 through 5 verse 6, Take time to read through this. In this, when the Israelites were going to go into captivity, Micah portrays them as a pregnant woman. And in uh, the the daughter, Zion, will writhe and cry out like a woman in labor, but will be rescued by God and brought back home. And in chapter 5 of Micah, a new ruler will be born in Bethlehem. This is the picture of the people of God. The remnant of God that that He will save and bring back, and and Satan here tries to overthrow Jesus when He was born. So when does that happen? Well, there's a lot of times when Satan tries to overthrow Jesus that we read about in Scripture. Certainly when He was born in Matthew chapter two, verses thirteen through eighteen, when Herod try, heard that a new king was going to be born in Bethlehem, that he tries to to wipe out all of the babies, but. God spares Jesus then. In Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13, Jesus is tempted directly by Satan three times. In Luke chapter 4, again, later on in the same chapter, Jesus was teaching and the people got angry and they tried to throw him off of a cliff, but it wasn't time. God's the one in control. Jesus steps right through them. And, the, and then he was temptate, tempted by through Peter when he has to tell Peter, "Get behind me Satan. There's a real temptation there, but Jesus turns him down again. Then ultimately, through the death on the cross, who killed Jesus? Well, it was God's plan for sure, but it was Satan's plan. He thought he was having his ultimate victory, but his ultimate victory was his ultimate defeat. When Jesus went to the cross... Satan tries to overthrow Jesus over and over and over again. You can even go back to the Old Testament when he tries to destroy Moses when he was a baby and so many other times where it looks like God's people are going to be destroyed or or taken care of, but God always comes through. And then he he fails to destroy Jesus. Jesus is now on his throne. He is ruling in heaven. When you look at this attempt to eat Jesus as his mother was given birth, this amounts to Satan's loss number one in this chapter. We're going to keep count. Loss number one. What happens right after that is you have God's people. This remnant, this woman, is taken, it runs away into the wilderness where she is protected and nourished by God. You think of any other times when people, God's people are, go out to the wilderness where they're protected and nourished? taught by God? So many. Certainly the Exodus. But you think of Moses. Before that, when he flees from Egypt, goes out into the wilderness, God protects him. You think of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, and there he was taken up by God. You think of Paul. After he leaves Damascus, if you read in Galatians, he went into the wilderness for three years, where he was taught directly by Jesus. There's so many times where people flee and they are protected by God, including Jesus when he was a baby when they fled to Egypt. God's people are, are protected and nourished in the wilderness for 1,260 days. If you take 30 days to a month, multiply that out, that is three and a half years or 42 months. That is already been referenced twice in chapter 11. It's going to be come up a, a couple more times in chapter 13. And people try to take this 1,260 days and three and a half and do it and make all these equations. It's a lot simpler than that. Three and a half is half of seven, the perfect or complete number. What we have here is that this time of of protection uh, is half of that. It is not an insignificant amount of time, but it's also not forever. I think that's really the point, is, you know, undergoing persecution, could you do something for three and a half years? It's going to really, really stink when you're in the middle of it, but after that time, and it's over with, you you can put up with a lot for a short period of time. And that's really the message here. But ultimately, this is Satan's loss number two in this chapter. And then you have some of the most weird words in the whole book. And before we get there, we need to avoid a certain temptation. We don't need to take one part of this vision and say, this was very literal, that the the woman was literally Mary, and when Jesus was born, there was an actual dragon walking around outside that manger scene, waiting to devour Jesus. If you don't take that literally, you shouldn't take this part literally either. This isn't something that happened so far in the past, or something that's going to happen very literally a long time in the future. In fact, we're given time markers, even in this context, of when this happens. So let's read this together, starting in verse 7. It says, then war broke out in heaven. That is wild, War breaking out in heaven? You think of anywhere where there wouldn't be war, it would be in heaven. But it says, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. There was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient dragon who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have now come, because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown thrown down. They conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down, to you with great fury because he knows that his time is short. Then war break out in heaven. You wouldn't expect this, but somehow Michael and his archangel Michael, the archangel, and his angels are fighting against the dragon. It doesn't say archangel here, that's from another place. But Michael and his angels, they're fighting against the dragon. You know who's not fighting here? God, Jesus. They don't have to fight. They just send their minions to go take care of Satan. He is so thoroughly, utterly beaten that there's no place for him at all. He is thrown down. They could not prevail. They didn't have a chance. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. He is so thoroughly defeated. God doesn't have to fight here. And it's even not much of a fight. You see in verse 10, then, again, it's time in heaven for rejoicing. I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God have come And the authority of Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. This guy, Satan, he's been coming up and accusing everyone. And he's been successful up to this point. He could look at everyone in the world and say, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. I accuse him of sin and he was right. They have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of the wages of sin is death, they deserve punishment. But he's been thrown down. He's been conquered. They conquered him by, how do they conquer him? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. Do you notice something here about these conquerors? Normally you don't talk about conquerors as people who were dead. But these conquerors, the ones who conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to the point of death. They gave up their lives. But it's time to rejoice. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. We'll come back to the later part of verse 12 in just a moment. First, we ask the question, when does this happen? When is Satan thrown down out of heaven? Well, there are timestamps. You look back in verse 5. It says, this woman gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God to rule on his throne. When does that happen? When does Jesus go up to rule on his throne? And then again in verse 10 Heard a loud voice in heaven say the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. You know, before the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, Satan had a claim on everyone. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then later on in verse 33 and 34, who could bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and he's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. See, in, in this, we see that Jesus conquers Satan completely. From back in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, remember that first prophecy? That, yeah, you're going to bruise his heel, serpent, but he's going to crush your head. And that happens when Jesus dies, is buried, and is raised, and then ascends to heaven. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus there says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house, plunder his possessions, unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. When Jesus dies buried and is raised, he goes into Satan's house, ties him up so tight, and plunders. He takes all those who belong to him. Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15, He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. All of those rulers of the earth, specifically Satan, but any who follow after him, Jesus overthrows and takes them down and disarms them. You know, even though those martyrs died in verse 11, they are conquerors. They conquer through the blood of the Lamb. You look back to what happened early on in the the book, back in chapter 6, those people who cry out with a voice, how long... Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until their number would be complete of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. Just wait. There are more martyrs coming. If you're sitting there in one of the seven churches, who's he talking about? Talking about you. You could be one of those martyrs. 7 verse 13 through 17, he describes uh, that these, these, these people who are the 144,000, but are, are sealed, but the ones that are in heaven, they're the ones who have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb and their wife, and they no longer hunger, they no longer thirst, no sun strikes them, and God washes away their tears. And then back in 2, verse 10, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Not a diadem, but a lasting victory crown. So all that totals up to Satan's loss number three. He tries to wage war in heaven. Doesn't work. Now imagine you're Satan. How would you feel? You try to devour this child, you're lost. The woman's still there. Nope, she fled off into the wilderness, and God is protecting and nourishing her, and you can't touch her. You're lost. You try to wage war in heaven, and you're lost. How do you feel if you're this big, scary red dragon? Keep reading in verse 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great Fury, because he knows that his time is short. He's been given a leash. Now, who holds the other end of that leash? God does. He only does what God allows him to do. And he is furious. So he can't reach the sun. He can't reach Jesus in heaven. So who does he turn to? Verse 13, he goes and tries to attack the woman. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she could fly away from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from its mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. Scoot back to, to verse 13. When the dragon saw, dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. I'm going to go after that remnant faithful and I'm going to try to overthrow them. But whoop. She was given the wings of an eagle, and she just flies away from the serpent's place back to her place in the wilderness for a time, times, and a half a time. Again, three and a half, three and a half times. A not insignificant amount of time, but it's not going to be forever either You know, this idea of flying on wings of eagles has been brought out many times in the Scriptures. In Exodus 19, verse 4, it says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He says that right before he gives the Ten Commandments. In Isaiah 40, we... uh, we sung a song with a line from Isaiah chapter 40 earlier. Youth may become faint and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. God protects His people and He allows them to fly away. You t- total all of that up and what does that come to? In this chapter, loss number four. And then right after that, he's ready to spew water out of his mouth. You think the woman is protected in the wilderness where there wouldn't be any water? Well, the Satan starts spewing water out of his mouth to to sweep her away. And there's a lot of passages, a lot of passages talking about this overwhelming feeling like you're drowning. Have you ever felt like that way? That Like you're drowning and you just feel overwhelmed? In Psalm 18, verse 4, Says the cords of death encompass me; the torrents of destruction assail me. Later on, he said, "He sent from on high; he took me; he drew me out of many waters." You ever had that drowning feeling? That's what he tries to do to the woman. And guess what? The earth helps her. The earth. Help the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from its mouth. You know what else? The earth helps the people of God when they, are, when they are between an army and a great big body of water. And God causes the water to split and the people walk across on dry ground. That the earth helps the people of God. All of this is in God's handiwork. You know what this adds up to? Loss number five: In this chapter, Satan is a five-time loser. He is the dragon who always loses. But what happens? If he can't have the child, he can't have the woman, or Michael and the angels, he's going to pick on whoever's left. Who's left? The woman's offspring. Look at verse 17. The dragon was furious with a woman. He went off to wage war against the rest of her rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. You got a mess. Imagine you are sitting in one of those original seven churches. He tries to overthrow Jesus when he was born. Doesn't work. He tries to wage war in heaven. Doesn't work. He tries to hit the woman. Doesn't work. Tries to hit the woman again. Doesn't work. Tries to hit the woman again with the water from his mouth. Still doesn't work. He's a five-time loser, and now he's coming after you. It's my turn. What does this take? Well, he tells us the people who are her offspring— Are those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus? If you don't know your Bible, are you going to know what the commands of God are to keep them? Are you going to know what the testimony about Jesus is if you're not, if you don't know it and you don't share it? This requires faith, it requires perseverance because I know it's my turn. Satan is going to attack me. And he's going to lose. He's a five-time loser. So let's look at some application. It may like appear like Satan is winning, but he is just desperate. He knows his time is short, so he's going to kick around whoever he can. He can't take you away by force, so instead he's going to attack you in the ways that he can. The point of this is, Stop losing to a loser. Satan is a loser. Now, I don't want to overlook Satan. Don't overlook your enemy. That's the biggest mistake that that you can have. He is very good at his job. He's been doing his job for a lot longer than you've been alive. I don't know how, how old you are. He's been doing his job a whole lot longer than you have. And he's good at it. First Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And he'll take the chance if you give it to him. But at the same time, don't give him more credit than he deserves. He is a loser over and over and over again. And whatever abilities he has, it's only because he has a leash. And God has allowed him to to go to the point of that leash, but go no further. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation he will provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. There is nothing that's going to attack you that God doesn't give you the grace and the ability to overcome. God is faithful. Yeah, Satan's temptations, they can feel overwhelming, they can feel like a flood, but God is faithful. He's got the other end of that leash and He'll yank it before He comes after you with something that you can't bear. Don't love your life, even to the point of death. That's a major message here. You can be a conqueror. That may mean that your life here on this earth may not be fun, and they may even kill you. But don't love your life here. See the life that is to come. And if Satan can't take us away by force, he'll use his three tools to deceive us away. Now, The rest of the story, I'm going to do a quick recap of what happens next, specifically in the next chapter. Right in the next verse, right after chapter 12 ends, you see the, the, the dragon standing on the edge of the sea, and he calls up this beast out of the sea. Now, that beast, I think specifically to those original seven churches, it is the nation of Rome, but God uses beasts like this, and He's used them forever. In this, that you see the persecution beast, He attacks you through persecution. In chapter 13, the first 10 verses, this beast He wages war directly against the saints. The whole world worships the beast, and you feel alone and by yourself. The the sea beast it, here. It is the persecution beast. The second beast in the second half, you have the land beast. And this land beast is trying to get you to worship the sea beast. And in that, he has the ability to do great signs. He's able to call down fire from heaven. And he even makes this little idol. And he's like a ventriloquist and he can make the idol talk. And now everybody is worshiping this idol. But don't give in to his false doctrine. And not only that, he puts marks on you. And that, number, that mark, that number of his name, and unless you have that mark, you get persecuted financially. You can't buy, seller trade unless you follow that beast. That number is 666. And there are a lot of things that people say about it, but the, the number six is just, it's an incomplete number. If the perfect number is seven, then six is incomplete. So this false doctrine here is incomplete, incomplete, incomplete. Six, six, six. It'll never be seven. It'll never be perfect. So don't listen to him. Later on in chapter 17, you have this great harlot who's sitting on top of the beast, and she is a harlot. She's trying to tempt you away, and the whole world... Ri follows in to her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth commit sexual immorality with her. Do you see these three different types? Satan and they're very different attempts that Satan will make to try to take you away. He may not get you by straight up temptation. You may stay may stray firm but if you don't know your Bible and you let false doctrine slip in, he takes you away just the same. Maybe you're really good at doctrine. Really good at doctrine. But you're afraid to die. Or you're afraid of pain. Maybe he can get you by persecution. Maybe you're, I'm going to stand up for God no matter what, and I know my scriptures, but you've got a secret behind closed doors. This temptation, this sin, that has got you hook, line, and sinker. Satan's got you just the same. Those are three different ways that Satan will try to take you. He cannot take you by force. He can't. But he'll try to deceive you. Because that's who he is. He's a deceiver, he's a liar, and he's a loser. Ultimately, in the book of Revelation, all of these beasts are overthrown. Satan himself is overthrown, completely destroyed. But whose side will you be on? Romans chapter 8 says, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan cannot take us away by force. But he can deceive us and we can leave on our own. So stop losing to a loser. You would? You can go ahead and put your notes away. We'll be ready to sing our invitation song shortly. If you know that there's something in your life that is tripping you up, and you need help, and you need to talk to somebody, find one of the elders here of this congregation, or talk to somebody who knows their Bible well that you trust, and and speak to them about the things that, that might be plaguing you. Satan looks big and scary, but really his time is short and you've got, you've got to endure just a little while longer. This life is just a breath and it'll be over and then we get to party in heaven like the people that are pictured in the book of Revelation. Are you looking forward to that great day coming? I know I sure am. There's a way that we can help you be uh, faithful to the Lord. We ask you to come to the front as we stand and sing.